If you have uh, Bibles, you can go ahead and make your way to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We are uh, continuing on in our series in the book of 1 Corinthians this morning. We've got about a, a month or so left in that, and then crazy enough, it's, uh, it'll be Advent. About a month out from now, the last, Thursday, uh, last um, Sunday in, uh, in, th- in um, November, Thanksgiving's on my brain for some reason, the last Sunday in November is when Advent starts. So we've got a few more weeks, we'll try to get through the rest of uh, 1 Corinthians in that time. In, uh, in June of 2003, the newspaper, the St. Petersburg Times, published an article that began like this. They were two rich families living 20 miles apart, linked by a phantom. Douglas Cohn, the road construction kingpin who paved many of Tampa Bay's highways, which if, you're gonna, if you aspire to be a road construction kingpin, it's helpful if your last name is Cohn. It's a, it's a helpful last name. Was married to Jean Ann Cohn, a beloved socialite and philanthropist for more than 50 years. Their house bordered the Palmacia, the Palmacia Golf and Country Club in South Tampa. Their money helped build Berkeley Preparatory School, where they sent three children and served as trustees. The school's library was named for Mrs. Cohn. She drove a Rolls. Donald Carlson was also a major Berkeley Prep benefactor, the one who never showed his face. People knew him as the husband of Hillary Carlson, a school trustee. Her husband worked for the State Department, Mrs. Carlson explained, and traveled a lot. The Carlsons sent their two children to Berkeley Prep and paid for its baseball complex, now known as Carlson Field. The the Carlsons lived quietly on a secluded estate in North Hillsborough. Mrs. Carlson drove a Rolls. For decades, the Cones and the Carlsons lived at opposite ends of the same county. What almost nobody knew was that Douglas Cone and Donald Carlson were the same man. And from there, the story goes on to explain how this man, Doug Cohn, Don Carlson, kept up this charade for so many decades and how it eventually came unraveled. And if if you were to do some digging in newspaper archives or Google it or something like that, uh, you would find that this is hardly the only instance of someone living a double life like this and keeping up two families. But what struck me about this particular example was how brazen it is. His two families were 20 miles apart in the same city. Uh, He sent his kids from both of those families to the same school and donated money in both names to the same school. Both of his wives were trustees on the board of that school, and they both drove Rolls Royces, which in case you're not up on cars, there's not a whole lot of those on the road. When we hear that story, we might immediately, and I think understandably, think, How cavalier, how calloused does one have to be to live a double life and maintain a double life like this for so long? And we might start to think that way until the Word of God holds up a mirror to our own lives and we realize that we treat God the same way. What's so tragic, what's so wrong about Doug Cohn, Don Carlson is that he had committed to love each of his wives and each of his families, yet he was simultaneously breaking his commitment to both of them by being devoted to the other. And isn't that often how we relate to God? With a divided devotion. We've been created by him. We've been created for uh, relationship with him. And yet we devote all or part of ourselves to other lesser things. The word that we use for this often is idolatry, 
which is really uh, worship or devotion that's directed toward anyone or anything that is not the one true God. It might take a, a variety of forms. We might reject God completely and devote ourselves wholly to something else. We might uh, attempt to devote ourselves to God and to other things at the same time. Uh, We might take a good gift that God has given us and turn that into an ultimate non-negotiable thing that we must have. We might trade away God himself as our treasure for his benefits. We might trade and replace the giver with the gift. All of that is a form of idolatry. All of that is divided devotion. And when we read in Scripture... Uh, about idolatry, it's often, particularly in the Old Testament, but some of the New as well, it's often portrayed as adultery. The Old Testament book of Hosea, the entire narrative of Hosea's life and his wife uh, Gomer leaving him, taking other lovers, that serves as really a metaphor and a picture for how the Israelites were not wholeheartedly devoted to God. The Israelites themselves were taking other lovers in the form of other gods from around the ancient Near East. They had a divided devotion. Now in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul's going to talk about this some, and he's going to warn these men and women in Corinth about the dangers of divided devotion. And we kind of shuffled around a little bit. We were in chapters 8 and 9 two weeks ago, and then 7 last week. We're back to 10 now. But chapters 8 through 10, the, the, the issue at hand is that Paul is talking about meat sacrifice to idols. And what he said already is that there's freedom to eat this meat in many cases. But there's also, what he's going to say here, a line that the Corinthians are crossing where this becomes not just meat anymore, it becomes idolatry. And so Paul's going to draw upon some examples from Israel's history and point to how the same thing is happening in Corinth and then highlight the danger of that. So that's where we're going to pick it up in 1 Corinthians 10. If you have one of those black hardcover Bibles, page uh, 957 is where that's at. I'm going to read uh, the first 22 verses, and then I'm going to skip down to uh, 31 through 11.1. All right, so follow along with me, uh, 1 Corinthians 10. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? 
the bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? And then skip down to verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. O God, who quickens our faith, who kindles our hope, who made light to shine in the darkness, shine within us, that you might unite our divided hearts. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. And if our eyes be dim, then may we trust you until they are clear enough to see. We pray that in your name. Amen. So how do we identify uh, this divided devotion in each of our hearts? How do we remain sensitive and sensitized to that? How do we escape it? We're going to consider this text in three, three pieces. Uh, a heritage of divided devotion, the danger of divided devotion, and then the gift of undivided devotion. So first, let's talk about the heritage of divided devotion. As the church, and we're seeing this all throughout the letter in, in 1 Corinthians, you and I have a beautiful heritage. What is the church? The church is not primarily a place Right, we're getting ready to move into this building. That's a church building. That is not primarily what the church is. Uh, the church is not primarily an institution or an organization. The church is the people of God. And what that means is that we are linked with the people of God throughout the ages, throughout generations. And all over the New Testament, and including in these verses, we see an incredible amount of continuity between the Israelites and the church. Under the Old Covenant, it was this nation-state of Israel, the descendants of Abraham. That was the people of God. In the New Covenant, the church, those who put their faith in the work of Christ, they are the people of God. And it's this continuity that really underlies all that Paul writes here in this letter. So those first few verses of chapter 10, as confusing as they might sound when you make your way through them, they are really making the point that in the wilderness— the Israelites had their own version of baptism and the Lord's Supper, just as we do today. Um, they had their own spiritual drink and their own spiritual food. They had manna that came from heaven. They had water that came from the rock. And what Paul is saying in that is that, that they participated in the life and in the work of God himself. The same thing is true for the church in the New Covenant. Right, through faith in what Jesus has done, through faith in his life, death, and resurrection, we participate, we're invited into the life and work of God. So we've got this beautiful heritage as the church, but as much as it is a beautiful heritage, it's also a mess, which is why we're calling our series a beautiful mess. It ties in very much to this, this text here. It's a broken heritage. It's a heritage of divided devotion. 
And Paul highlights several examples from Israel's time in the wilderness where they strayed from their devotion to God. So first in verse 7, there's this event recorded in Exodus 32 where the people sit down to eat and drink and rise up to play. This is the kind of classic example of idolatry in the Old Testament. This is the, the incident of the golden calf, which I know many of you are probably familiar with. Moses goes up on the mountain to receive the Ten Commandments, the law from God, and the people get restless as they wait for him to return. So they give all of their gold to Aaron, Moses' brother, the priest, and he melts it down and he forms it into a golden calf and he says to the people, Behold, your God who delivered you from captivity in Egypt. Then in verse 8, Paul mentions an incident recorded in Numbers chapter 25. This is where the Israelites chose their sexual desires over the command of God not to intermarry with the other people that were around them. So they're, they're traveling through the wilderness. There's other people groups all around them that worship other gods. And God says, don't marry with them. Why? Well, because sex is a lot more than just physical activity. It always is. And so what's, what God's concern was there is that when we act out our sexuality in ways that are counter to God's design, that's going to divide our devotion. It's going to draw our heart away from him. And it happened to the Israelite people, and it's happened to the people of God in many other instances throughout the ages. And then in verses 9 and 10, Paul recounts an episode from Numbers 21 where the people are grumbling against God. They're speaking out against him. They're tired. uh, They're impatient. They're getting sick of eating manna every single day. So they, they challenge God. They call into question his goodness and his care for them. Which really, when you do that, when we do that, it's really the same thing as saying that if I were in God's seat, I would do it differently, I would do it better. It's being more devoted to myself, it's trusting myself more than I trust God. And Paul says all of these things happened as an example for us, to instruct us. And I'm sure it's fairly obvious, these are negative examples, right? This is how not to do it. Which all of us, I think, would read these examples and see some of the consequences of it and say, yeah, that sounds good. I have no desire at all to repeat that. But then perhaps you've done what I've done at times. And I read these Old Testament experiences of Israel in the wilderness, and I think, with the kind of miraculous grace that they were experiencing every single day, right? they are getting bread off of the ground that is raining down from heaven every single morning. God is sustaining them. The shoes on their feet are not wearing out. They are getting water out of a rock. With all of that kind of miraculous grace, how could they grumble against God? How could they put God to the test? How could they fall into idolatry like this? Maybe you've, sometimes I wrestle with this. How is the golden calf even possible? How do you get delivered from 400 years of slavery in Egypt and attribute that to a cow? But that's exactly what I do when I divide my devotion. That's, that's me participating in the same insanity that Israel is here. And it seems more subtle, perhaps, in my life. There's no literal figure of a golden cow or anything else. But it's no less a rejection of God. And what's more, uh, you and I today, we have centuries more of the miraculous and sustaining grace of God in our rearview mirror that we get to draw upon. We have even these examples that were written down for our instruction. And so for us to choose 
idols, whatever they might be, over Christ is to do the same, if not worse, than what the Israelites did in these instances. And this is the ugly and messy part of our heritage as God's people. We, we are, as his people, created for communion with him, but we become adulterous. We become rebellious. We choose a divided devotion instead. There's an author named uh, Dick Kyes, and he speaks about the relevance of Scripture's teaching on idolatry for our day. In case you ever um, think about idolatry, well, that's just something that people do in third world countries or they did years ago with statues and figures of other gods and things like that. He says this, A careful reading of the Old and New Testament shows that idolatry is nothing like the crude, simplistic picture that springs to mind of an idol sculpture in some distant country. As the main category to describe unbelief, the idea is highly sophisticated, drawing together the complexities of motivation in individual psychology, the social environment, and also the unseen world. Idols are not just on pagan altars, but in well-educated human hearts and minds. The Bible does not allow us to marginalize idolatry to the fingers of life. It is found on center stage. Now, if that's true, and I think it is, if this is something that we do just as much as the Israelites did, then it follows that this is written down not only for the instruction of the Corinthians who originally read this letter, but for our instruction as well. And what that means is that we likewise need Paul's warnings about the danger. So second, let's talk about the danger of divided devotion. In each of these examples, and you probably picked up on it as we read, God pronounces some form of judgment where people die. Sometimes it's from the sword. Sometimes it's from plagues. Sometimes it's from God's own hand. But all of that speaks to just how big a deal idolatry really is. And in fact, because of their divided devotion, only two people who left Egypt as adults actually made it into the promised land 40 years later. Two people. Everybody else, every other adult who left Egypt did not make it into the promised land. They all died in the wilderness, including Moses and Aaron. And what that tells us is that the consequence of idolatry is death. For some, like these examples in 1 Corinthians 10, That involves physical death. For everyone, the consequence of idolatry is spiritual death. It's separation from God. And when we do this, when we treat God this way, when we divide our devotion, it does two things in in God at the exact same moment. It breaks his heart and it incites his judgment. So it breaks his heart because he has created us for himself. He has created us to know him, to love him, to be devoted wholeheartedly to him. He knows there is something more and something better for us than the other things we would direct our worship toward. But also as the perfect Lord over all creation, the one against whom we rebel, this incites his judgment. It's like treason against a king. Now here's where what Paul says in this chapter gets even more unsettling. We're not immune to idolatry as Christians. We're not immune to it. Devotion is not a a one-time decision. I don't know the background that you come from in terms of, some of you grew up in different kinds of churches, some of you grew up in no church background at all. If you grew up in certain kind of uh, church tribes, it's sometimes emphasized, okay, the whole thing about the Christian faith, you pray a prayer, 
you're saved, you're good, you get your what's sometimes cutely called fire insurance, um, your get-out-of-jail-free card. You know, that's, that's what salvation is. What Paul is saying here is actually uh, devotion is not a one-time decision. It's actually a moment-by-moment lifetime of small decisions. What are we going to be devoted to in every single moment of our lives? And these examples here, these were the Israelites, right? They were the, the chosen people of God. He wasn't talking about examples of people in the wilderness, like the other people groups around them. It was the people of God committing these things. And the Corinthians seem to have overlooked that danger. They seem to be naively resting in the fact that because they've already become Christians, that they are somehow immune to idolatry. And so where Paul goes with this is verse 12, and he says, Be careful when you think you are standing firm. Be careful when you think you're standing firm. Don't presume upon God. Don't assume that just because you are now part of the people of God that you are immune to living a double life through divided devotion. And as we've seen that the issue here, the specific issue in Corinth is eating meat sacrificed to idols. Well, the meat itself isn't the issue, but, but it crosses a line when the Christians in Corinth are attending these worship services in the pagan temples where the meat is being sacrificed. That's the line that's being crossed here that Paul is addressing. And that's because in that moment, the meat ceases to just be meat, and it actually becomes participation in the worship of a false god. Right? And this is the danger, I think, that underlies our insistence on our personal freedoms. Right? We talked a couple weeks ago, we have a lot of personal freedoms in Christ. We insist upon them at times. We kind of take them and, and tend to use them selfishly for our own benefit. This is how personal freedoms end up enslaving us. There are so many things in life that really are, are neutral. Food is neutral. Alcohol is neutral. Television is neutral. The internet is neutral. Money is neutral. Time is neutral. But in each and every instance that we choose to use or not use those things, it ceases to be neutral and it becomes participation in something. It becomes really an expression of our heart level devotion. So you can eat meat and you can eat meat to the praise of the one true God or you can eat meat as participation in really a corrupted form of worship to a false demon God, as Paul says. And what he's saying is that even though these things in and of themselves might be neutral and can go either way, no specific action, including those things, is neutral. It can't serve both Christ and demons. You can't participate in both of them at the same time. And so the question for us in light of this becomes, where am I prone to live out a divided devotion and participate in the worship of a false god. Where am I prone to do that? Or maybe a more succinct way to say it, what are my idols? What are my idols? The reformer uh, John Calvin once famously said that the human heart is a factory of idols. It just keeps cranking them out. Some of us know ourselves really well in this regard. Others of us perhaps don't know ourselves very well in this. Uh, among Christians, idolatry is hardly ever an overt rejection of Jesus. If we were overtly rejecting Jesus, we would probably cease claiming to be Christians at all. 
So much more often, it's in addition to Jesus. It's saying that I need these other things in order to really feel satisfied and completed. Yeah, I believe in Jesus. That gets me so far. But I can't quite put all of my eggs in that basket. I've got to divide my devotion and have something else in addition to that. And so this is by no means comprehensive, but I want to offer you a few diagnostic questions to help you identify the idols in your life. And particularly for you, if this is a a brand new concept, or if this is something where you say, yeah, I really don't know myself well in, in this respect, I just would really invite you to include others in that. We have blind spots when it comes to our own idolatry. It's helpful to have other people who know us well. Uh, when we invite them into that, they can point those out usually better than we can. And if you, if you uh, hear these questions and you think through them and you can't come up with any answer at all, then I would really encourage you, please reread verse 12 because you're overestimating yourself. Questions that we that can help us identify idols in our lives. Here's a few. What do you daydream about? Where does your mind go? Where does your mind drift when you're not really intentionally thinking about anything? What do you kind of consume your, your thought life with when you're not intentionally directing it towards something? How would you describe a successful life? What are the different ingredients to the recipe of a successful life in your mind? Uh, About what would you say, uh, if I only had this, or if I only was like this, then I would feel happy, completed, satisfied, something like that. Another question, how do you use your time? Our our topic for the men's retreat that we just came back from this weekend uh, was redeeming the time. And I think a lot of our men, I, I would encourage you if, you had, if, you, if you're friends with or you're married to someone that was at that uh, retreat, ask them uh, how they thought about that topic in, in light of uh, those couple days of thinking about this. But when we stand back and take stock of how we use our time, it often puts a spotlight on what we're actually devoting our lives to, what we actually consider to be important. You know, time is always an issue of priority. If we say I don't have time for something, it's, it's, it's just like saying that's not important enough for me to make time for And so how we use our time is always an indicator of what we're devoting our lives to. Similarly, how do we use our money? How do you use your money? Just like time, uh, receipts, bank statements, these are some of the best diagnostic tools that we have to point out what we actually are devoted to in our lives. And I'll tell you what I discover when I ask these questions of myself, at least some of it. Approval is an idol for me. Comfort can quickly become an idol for me. Control. Are things out of control? I feel really anxious if things are out of control. Control can become an idol for me. Uh, Significance is an idol for me. As in, can I see visible, tangible results of my efforts? Financial security can be an idol for me. I guess that relates to the comfort one a little bit in my heart. But the, there are others. Uh, the, the idol factory of my heart produces many. And I share that with you about my own life, and I offer you these questions because I really, I share the, the pastoral plea of Paul that he says in verse 14. He says to the people in Corinth, Beloved, dear friends, flee from idolatry. I want that for you, and I want that for me. Flee from idolatry. Don't Give these idols comfortable quarter in your hearts. 
Because just as they were for Israel, just as they were for the Corinthians, likewise for us, these idols are the substance and source of death. They are the substance and source of what divides us and separates us from God. So as God reveals these idols to us, as we see those places where we are living out a divided devotion, turn, let's turn from that idolatry and again pursue a single-hearted devotion to God. Okay, how do we do that? How do we do that? Only in the strength that God provides. And verse 13 here is so encouraging to me because it is hope in the midst of what otherwise is kind of a bleak picture. Like, let's celebrate our heritage as the people of God. It's all of these bad examples of them worshiping other gods and dying. That's not very hopeful. Verse 13 is, what's our hope? How do we run and flee from idolatry? It's because God remains faithful when we are faithless. Right? We divide our devotion. It's us who lives the double life. God does not. God remains faithful. And as he does in his faithfulness, he preserves us from being so overwhelmed by temptation that we succumb to idolatry. In other words, by the grace of God, idolatry is not inevitable. He always gives us a way of escape. In his faithfulness, he provides this way out that we don't have to devote our lives to anyone or anything but him. Now, though this is only possible as God does deep work in us and exposes our idols and then helps us change, what can we do practically to help, to help uh, participate with God in that process of him ripping out our idols? One of the practical ways that God provides a way of escape is by leading us to incorporate uh, healthy rhythms in our lives. In his book, Desiring the Kingdom, an author named James K.A. Smith says this. He says, Our heart's desires are shaped and molded by the habit-forming practices in which we participate daily. And so what he's saying there is that the practices and rhythms of our lives matter, and they matter greatly. Because what these practices and rhythms of our lives do is they both demonstrate and then shape at the same time our devotion. They demonstrate what we're devoted to. They also continue to shape our devotion. So my divided devotion and the specific idols that I have, that has been shaped and that has been reinforced by my practices. So using even these same kind of diagnostic questions, we can ask ourselves, okay, well, what desire-shaping practices can I incorporate into my life that help me flee from idolatry. So we might not call it daydreaming, but do we ever meditate on the things of God? Do we ever consider who God is and his purposes and his plans and, and his love for us? Do we ever use our time to read scripture and pray and talk about our relationship with God with other people? Do we use our money in ways that will help reinforce our desire to be devoted to God? Right? Giving tithes and offerings, using our money to serve other people and not just for our own wants and our own needs. And this is really important. Don't make the mistake of thinking that you can flee from idolatry simply by changing your practices. Okay? External acts by themselves will never root out the deep heart level idols that are in each of us. But think of it this way. As God provides for you a way of escape, and begins to tear down those old rhythms and practices that have led to divided devotion, he enables us to build back in their place new and better rhythms that fuel our devotion of him.
And that speaks, I think, to something important, and that is that fleeing idolatry is not just about avoiding the negative. It's also about an opportunity for something so much better. As God gives us a way of escape, he offers us this gift of an undivided devotion. And so lastly, let's talk about that. The gift of undivided devotion. I wish for me that seeing the danger of idolatry was enough motivation to avoid it altogether. That should be enough motivation, and for me it often is not. But what really begins to stir uh, my heart this way, what really begins to compel me to flee from idolatry, is to consider the gift that an undivided devotion would be, or that it is in the fleeting moments that I see it in my life. To, to my knowledge, nobody in this room is living the kind of overtly double life like uh, Doug Cohn, Don Carlson was. But do you ever feel like you're living out a microcosm of that in some way? Do you ever feel pressure to behave a certain way around this group of people and then a different way around this group of people? Or is there some venue? Maybe it's your workplace. Maybe it's the bar. Maybe it's with your friends from high school. Is there some venue where you kind of even become a little bit of a different person? Or maybe even a step further than that, what is there in your life that if other people were to find out about it, you would just be horrified by that? Or even a step further than that, is there something in your life that literally nobody knows about but you? Because if any of this is true for you, then you have divided your loyalties and you have divided your devotion. And what you have done in that is you have forced yourself into a compartmentalized, disintegrated life. And as you try to cope with that, you will either feel conflicted all the time, constantly burdened by the fact that you're living out this lie, or you'll become so calloused that you will live a subhuman life. You will just be the sum of your fleeting activity and your fickle desires, not caring about how your life impacts the lives of anybody else. And the whole point of what Paul is saying in this letter, his pastoral plea to the men and women in Corinth, is that we aren't meant to live that way. We aren't meant to live that way. And the gift of undivided devotion means that we don't have to. That we can be wholehearted. That we can be integrated. We can live with a united heart. In Psalm 86, David prays for exactly this. In Psalm 86, verse 11, he cries out to God, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. And then here's the line. Unite my heart to fear your name. Unite my heart. Give me one whole integrated heart that is singularly devoted to you. So far from just a a fear motivation to flee from idolatry, this is the other side of that. This is the freedom motivation. And near the end of this chapter, what I read a little while ago, Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And we often read that because it is as a command. Okay, let's use our lives to glorify God in everything we do. True. But can you just imagine, can you imagine being free enough to do everything in your life to the glory of God? Can you imagine living your life without having to wrestle with this internal division and this internal conflict? And not having this convoluted mixture of desires and motives and goals, but really being free enough to enjoy every good gift that God has made and put in your life in a way that truly honors and glorifies him. 
the one who made you for himself, the one who made those gifts for your enjoyment and for your good. What does that sound like as I'm describing that? That sounds like eternal life with Jesus. That sounds like what heaven is going to be like. And the gift of undivided devotion is exactly that. It is a taste of the kingdom of God. It is a foretaste of what we will experience in its fullness in our communion with Christ. We are worshipers. We will devote ourselves to something. And we've been created by God to devote ourselves to him. Though we are faithless, he remains faithful. Though we divide our devotion and we go after other lesser gods that really are no gods, Jesus Christ sought not his own advantage, offered himself up, and provided the only way of escape from this hopeless futility of idolatry. And by faith, God invites us to participate in his very life. So may we come and receive from his hand this gift of an undivided devotion. May we be people who are wholeheartedly devoted to him. Amen. Amen. Let me pray. Father, you are a good and kind and gracious God. And you have made us for yourself and you have given us gifts to use in a way that honors you and serves the good of all. And we confess that we divide our devotion and we run from you and we rebel against your design for us and for this world. And so we need you, Jesus, through your work to again expose our idols, rip them out at the deep heart level. We cannot do that on our own. We need you to do that for us. We pray that you would. We pray that we would not only flee idolatry because it, because it incites your, your judgment, because it's the substance of death, all these things that are fearful. We pray that we would also flee from idolatry because we see the beauty and the possibility and the gift of what an undivided devotion would actually be like. Help us to taste that in part now. And even as we come to this table, may it be a renewal in tasting that this morning. That we might at this table see how you truly have invited us to participate in Christ. Let me pray this in his name. Amen.